I really want to draw people into repentance and lament. I think I think that's what it's really about. Um, I think Tim Keller talks in his his book Counterfeit Gods talking about idolatry, but you know we can extend that to like very dysfunctional mindsets, distorted mindsets that, as you said, they're not out there. They're here in the UK, but even that's not enough. They're not here in the UK. They're here in my heart. So one, we've got to recognise and just name that racism. This isn't an American problem. It's a human problem. It's not a secular problem. It's a human problem. It's a, for us, I want to name it's a Church of England problem. Well, hey friends, it's Jason here, and I just want to welcome you to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have Pete Hughes from England as our guest. Pete is the pastor of King's Cross Church in East London. And uh, every time I visit London, oftentimes I'm there for work with Alpha, I always try to make my way out to King's Cross to take in one of their services. I mean, the culture of that church is just so dynamic. I love the worship and I love the teaching. And I just think as Canadians, Canadian churches and church leaders, we have lots to learn from Pete and the work that they're doing. And so I'm so thrilled that he would be on with us today. He's the author of a book called All Things New. I'll tell you more about it at the other end of the conversation. I think every one of you should read it and buy it. So grateful for the time that he spent with us today and excited for you to hear our chat. Before we jump in, though, I just want to remind you that we want to keep inviting you into shaping the conversation we're having with guests. Even as we had Pete Hughes on uh, today, the conversation that we had was informed in part by some of the questions that you as the listeners submitted. And coming up, we're doing interviews with John Thompson from Sanctus Church in Ontario, from Daniel Strickland from Ontario as well. And so if you've got questions for either of those upcoming guests, why don't you throw them at us? You can do that really easily on our website, ccln.ca or on Instagram at Church Leaders Network. And lastly, before we jump into the interview, I want to give a huge thanks to our partners. Um, Really, this podcast would not be possible if there weren't a few organizations that heard about this idea of creating a conversation with pastors from across Canada that could serve here and around the world. And uh, today, I really want to thank Compassion Canada and Briarcrest uh, for making this episode possible. They're so committed to serving the local church and church leaders in Canada. They've partnered with us to make this weekly resource available. So huge love to them. We'll tell you more about what they've got going on uh, this week and in future episodes. So with all that said, enjoy today's interview with Pete Hughes. Welcome to the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. We want to serve church leaders and their teams by sharing honest and thoughtful conversations about pastoral leadership. In this podcast, we were exploring the question, what does it mean to lead people in the way of Jesus in the midst of today's world? Let's jump into today's conversation. Pete, I'm really, really glad that you agreed to take some time to chat today. Uh, tell us a little bit about your world in London right now. Well, things, things are crazy here in London. We've obviously been in lockdown for quite some time. Personally, that means homeschooling, three young kids trying to homeschool, as well as reimagine church life and ministry you know, London's been hit pretty hard. So in the UK, mm. it's the epicenter of this c- kind of COVID-19 outbreak. So there's been a lot of anxiety in the city and we've been through the different kind of transitions over the course of the last 10 plus weeks. And mm. then obviously with what we're seeing right now in terms of protesting around race, it's it's just a crazy time. 
and believing that God's at work in incredible ways. And sometimes mm. I can see that clearly and sense faith rising in my being and on my darker days trying to question, God, where are you in this? So mm. it's it's up and down um, and each day feels very different to the last day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I feel that. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I know a lot of people listening know a lot about you, um, but tell us a little bit about you know, where you live, King's Cross, and your journey yeah. to that place, uh, planting a church. And, but take us before the church is planted and the, what brought you to that place. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a long story in terms of Soul Survivor, if you know of Soul Survivor, a big youth ministry here, you know, in the UK, it was part of Soul Survivor for a number of years. Um, Soul Survivor organizes these big festivals for young people. And having spent a number of time, a number of years on staff there, felt this stirring towards church planning, but didn't really know what that would look like. Hmm. So ended up moving into the city of London, working for a church called St. Mary's, Branston Square, studied theology there, got ordained in the Church of England. And all of that time, you know, was really asking, Lord, we'll go wherever you want us to go. Would you speak? Um, and kind of a miracle story, we ended up house-sitting for someone who owned this incredible property in King's Cross for five years. Like at the, the beginning, they said they're relocating their family. Um, they were looking for someone just to house-sit for six months rent-free. Would we consider it? It was one of those phone calls where you're like, hmm. can I just think and pray about it? Yes. I thought and prayed about it. The answer is <laughs> yes. I heard rent-free, like family house, central London. And six months ended up being five years. And I kind of look back and see that as a kind of a stitch up. This was kind of God locating us to where eventually mm. the KXC story would materialize. Um, so we spent a number of years at St. Mary's. And when we really began to ask those questions, where do you want us? Almost we began to join the dots of mm. like looking back over the shoulder, seeing what God had done, where he'd led us. And suddenly it's like, oh, maybe we're men of plant here. Maybe that's why we've been living here for five years. So that was the kind of beginning of the story. King's Cross itself, if you know the UK at all, you'll probably know of King's Cross as kind of like the Monopoly board, big train station. Like it's this massive transport network, probably the biggest transport hub in London or one of. Um, and yet the area around King's Cross is known historically as a, like major deprivation. Hmm. So red light districts are known for the kind of the sex work of the area, gang activity, um, drugs, you know, you, you name it. It's kind of, it's an area with a fairly, you know, tarnished reputation. And yet around 2008, 2009, there were these plans to redevelop the whole area, you know, billions of pounds being poured in. So we went to our bishop and said, hey, look, this whole area is gonna completely be regenerated rather mm. than waiting a decade and trying to plant a church and catching up with culture and the story of King's Cross. What if we plant a church now and mm. we become part of the unfolding story? So when the likes of Google and Facebook and all the big guns move in, what if we were there at the beginning? And, you know, whilst the area is being redeveloped and regenerated, what if we work towards the spiritual mm. regeneration of the area? And that was like 10 plus years ago. And we've been journeying, you know, over the last 10 years with, with a vision to see restoration in this part of London. Oh, I love it. And uh, I know part of your story is you first entered into that place, a place that's in like early development stages. Yeah. Like walking and praying was actually a big part of that formative experience yeah. for you and your church. Can you just describe, because I think what stood out to me is like prayer walking as a strategy 
for church planners and pastors is what I took from reading your story a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was massive. And I think we began to develop a heart for the area through prayer walking. Like there's this one cool story. So Arjun, they're the redevelopers of of the site. And um, when they first, you know, laid out their visions, they put a fence around the perimeter of the site that was going to be redeveloped, all behind the station. And this was 2008, 2009, so during the sort of global financial crisis. So they had this multi-billion pound vision, and then they had everyone watching them basically saying, you've bidden off more than you can chew. You're going to embarrass yourself. You're promising like a world-class redevelopment, like that's mm. going to become a new cultural hotspot in London, a center of education, business, the arts, leisure facilities, and and you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to deliver. So they, on the entrance to this kind of wasteland, uh, the entrance to the site, they put this huge placard up, and it just said King's Cross is being delivered. Mm. And I wow. remember prayer walking around the site, and there's a handful of us, and just looked up at this kind of giant picture. And it was almost as if God was speaking and got that adrenaline rush, which I knew to be the spirit of God, basically saying, look, there's this kind of like big development group. They've thought about everything in terms of what human flourishing might look like, but they've not thought about church or, Mm. you know, spiritual strongholds coming down. But almost as if God's saying, look, here's my heart. This area of London known for the sex industry, gang activity and trafficking, dot, dot, dot. I'm going to deliver it. I'm Mm. going to establish my kingdom here. And that kind of gave us faith to pray. Like, this wasn't our idea. It wasn't just a good idea. This was God's idea. And if God was making a way for us, we could trust the, you know, if we just joined the slipstream of the work of his spirit, we were going to be in for an incredible adventure. Mm. And I, I love the language of deliverance. So as I saw that kind of, again, vision began to grow of like deliverance in terms of flushing out darkness, but also deliverance is the language we use when something is birthed. You know, a baby is delivered. Mm. And we kind of felt like God was saying, I'm going to flush out, you know, darkness from this area. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to bring to birth a community centered around Jesus that's going to bring the life of the kingdom to this part of London. And I'll I'll never forget that moment. And so much of the vision of our church, I guess it was birthed in seeing that placard from Mm. a very, very secular organization speaking prophetically over a piece of land saying King's Cross is going to be delivered. Mm. I heard you um, talk about this line. I think it was actually... um, someone prayed or as a prophetic word for you guys, this idea of your destiny being hidden in your history. And uh, I just was really gripped by that. And just, could you just walk us through just your own journey of, yeah, what does that mean? This idea of your destiny's hidden your, or your destiny's hidden in your history. But then also like, what did that mean for, in particular for KXC? Yeah. So I'd been working on this book. I mean, in many ways I began writing the book before we planted KXC, but it took me 10 years to write. And it's about the story of scripture, the renewal of all things, and the end of the story being a completion of what began in the beginning in mm. in Genesis, where there's no sickness, no suffering, no pain. That It's a vision of humanity fully alive in relationship with God, in relationship with one another. And the end of the story, you know, no death, grief, crying, pain, God sitting on his throne declaring, behold, I'll make all things new. 
I'm going to restore everything to how it was in the beginning. So kind of theologically, we'd been chewing on that. And then when Alan Scott just spoke prophetically over us as a church saying, look, I believe that your destiny is hidden in your history. Mm. Suddenly it was like, well, that's the theology that we've been carrying. But what if we introduced that narrative of scripture to the narrative of King's Cross? So I became really fascinated with what, what is the story of King's Cross? Um, and like a very brief summary would be, if you go back to AD 6061, there was a battle that took place on this land between the Roman tribes and the Celtic tribes under Queen Boudicca. And there was this huge battle that took place. The Romans won and began a settlement there. And the settlement was known as Battle Bridge. So if you walk around the streets of King's Cross, you'll see these signs for Battle Bridge. And suddenly as I learned that part of the story, it's like, wow, that makes sense because this feels like spiritually contested space. Like you feel like you've got these big empires that collide in King's Cross, you know, business and other empires that are kind of fighting for space and dominance. And spiritually, we kind of felt that. And I was like, well, that makes sense. Like that's how this story began with mm. empires you know, battling for dominance. Um, and we just started praying into that, that actually that story would be broken. I think it was St. Augustine once said that, you know, the city of God, his metaphor for heaven and the kingdom on earth is the only city that's built not on blood taken, but on blood given. So mm. like blood was shed in this battle for dominance. And yet years later, it became known as King's Cross, like this, you know, vision of actually the blood of the king redeeming land. So that gave us some language of, okay, this is a place where empires are colliding and we're seeing that right now. Um, but we're going to pray that this area is known as a place where the kingdom of God is present and active. So that was one interesting part of the story. A second interesting part of the story, 597 AD, some Roman missionaries arrived in the UK. Um, they were looking for a place to settle. They found Battle Bridge. Um, and they thought, like, this is an amazing place to settle. This can be a center of mission for us. They were carrying the relics of St. Pancras, hence the name of the station, King's Cross St. Pancras. Um, and they built, you know, a church, which is one of the first sites of worship here in the UK. And it was like, OK, we are going to use this space to send out missionaries to convert this land. Hmm. And again, that was fascinating. I didn't know that story previously. And it was like, hang on a minute. If you ask anyone in the UK about King's Cross, they'll be like, OK, transport links sends out goods all over the UK, beyond the UK to Europe. And yet before it was ever transporting goods across the land, it was transporting good news. Like wow. missionaries were being sent out to proclaim the gospel. And we're like, well, that's that's in the history of this land. Well, if our destiny is hidden in that story, then God wants to redeem this land and send out missionaries all over the UK and to Europe to see the gospel advance. So again, you know, that got the juices flowing, got excited by like God's at work, like God wants to do something, redeem the story. Final bit of the stories in the 1800s, that's when the, the name King's Cross developed. The king at the time, King George, um, apparently the area was really run down and he thought a good idea would be to erect a statue of himself. And mm. apparently it was a hideous statue and within 20 years they'd ripped it down. But in that 20 year period, the area became known as King's Cross because of this statue that had been erected. And ever since then, the name has stuck. There's no statue, but it's called King's Cross. And again, uh, it's just a beautiful prophetic sign mm. of of actually God's heart for this area is to bring about deliverance, that his kingdom would be the, the kingdom that brings human flourishing to people, that it will be a, a center of mission where missionaries are sent out um, and it's his blood that's going to redeem the land. 
And I guess the learning for me is like our job as pastors is to be fully immersed in the story of God. So mm. the story you live in is the story you live out. We need to be immersed in the story of God, but we're located in time and space. So we need to know the story of our town, our cities. We need to know the history. How did it become as it is today? And part of our job is to introduce the story of the city to the story of God. And when that begins to happen, it, the language, the best language is deliverance, redemption. Mm. You know, the kingdom begins to break out. So that's been part of our story. And that's the story we, we're kind of living in right now, seeing King's Cross redeemed and its history. Almost, yeah, experiencing engagement with, with God's plans and purposes. Hmm. One of the things that I've been thinking about a bunch is when we tell stories on podcasts like this or in sermons about like a church plant or a renewal work, it all happens in like a 10 minute segment. Yeah. It feels really good. <laughs> but when you live it, it happens over yeah. a decade filled with yeah. like all sorts of pain and self doubt. And, yeah. and I just, um, I know that you've been honest lots about just the challenge of yeah. being in a space like that. And can you just tell us a little bit about just that journey of like of the battle internally and then within a family, just to be able to contend for a space like that and what it's looked yeah. like for your journey at KXC and just knowing there's a lot of people listening that want to live into a story of that kind of renewal. Yeah. But what it feels like today, you know, is yeah. a battle of, you know, just trying to just even be present to your family and the people around you feels like a battle. Yeah. That, I mean, that's right. It's, there's been so many highs and moments of breakthrough and so much struggle. And I, I look back and there's been different struggles. One of the big struggles in the early years was trying to be innovative in an Anglican system, an mm. institution that's quite resistant and frightened of change. So that, that was really challenging and had a lot of local churches very nervous about this new expression of church in the heart of this area that was going through huge transformation. So pioneering within an institution, that, that's challenging. And that gets personal. Um, so walking through that was a struggle. I think even learning the history that I've just spoken through, I think as you begin to understand the story, you actually engage in the strongholds that mm. have shaped the story of a, a location. Um, and in choosing to continue to pray and worship, you, you go into battle, you know, in, in the spiritual realm. And, and that is incredibly costly. Um, but if you want to see the kingdom of God break out, if you want to see the strongholds, you know, broken down, there's a warfare and there's a cost. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you know that the death brings about this resurrection life. But when you tell the story, you tend to talk about the life. Um, and less about the death, but th there's been some moments where death is the only word for it. I mean, I, I can think of one particular moment. It was actually around the same time where we'd been given this word about your destinies hidden in your history. We'd done some sort of like work around the story of King's Cross um, and began to name some of the strongholds. And we ended up doing this kind of um, night of worship in Scala, which is the big nightclub in the mm. very centre of King's Cross. Anyone in London knows it as like a really seedy, I don't know if you have that language in, in Canada, but like dodgy, dark, anything goes in that nightclub. It was a kind of sex cinema. It got closed down. It got used for loads of different things. It kept having to close down. 
And it's just got a really bad reputation. We're like, okay, what if we took an army of worshippers into the darkest place in King's Cross mm. and we just sort of like celebrated the kingdom coming? And um, so we'd written a load of songs. We were kind of planning to record. We flew over to producers from the States, from Redding, California, who were going to produce this album with these songs that, you know, kind of the songs are like a soundtrack to our story over the kind of mm. five, six years of KXC. And on the flight over, one of the producers had a heart attack on, on the plane. Um, and they had to sort of like land it at Heathrow in London really quick. Ambulance arrived immediately at the scene. Um, and for the next 12 hours, we were like praying that Andrew Jackson, the name of the producer, that God would rescue his life. He was rushed straight to Harefield Hospital. Um, we'd never met him. So we kind of drove to the hospital um, and were just praying over his body and asking for a miracle and tragically he he died mm. and it was one of these moments where you kind of felt the kingdom of heaven close but the kingdom of darkness around as well it felt like we were in a, a, a battle and emotionally it was just so traumatic i think it's the first time i've been in in a operating theater praying kind of like for healing over someone that was slipping away, then praying for resurrection, and then actually just committing someone's body into the hands mm. of their saviour. Um, and we were speaking in tongues and we were singing and we were weeping, just every human emotion you could possibly imagine. Um, and then went back that night, just shaken by the experience. And the other producer, Jeremy Edwardson, we basically said, look, we just got to sack off this recording. Like it's, we can do a recording another time. You need to go home, be with your family and your church family. Your best friend has died right in front of you. Like, let's just remake the plans. And the next morning he basically phoned and said, we've got to go ahead with the recording. Mm. Like, I, I need to honour Andrew's legacy as a worshipper by doing this recording. So we, we went ahead and we gathered 600 folk or so in this kind of dingy nightclub and Andrew's mum and dad flew over from California because they wanted to be at this worship night to say their final farewell to their son yeah. and it was it, I mean it was one of the most emotionally charged nights of my life and and we basically began to worship and it was mainly lament but then towards the end of the evening something really extraordinary took place where we just we knew this evening was going to be about contending for breakthrough in the land we, we never thought it would look like someone dying. Um, but but as, as the night went on, we were like, we need to not just lament, we need to intercede right now. And we need to pray that the walls that stand in opposition to the kingdom of God in King's Cross, you know, they need to come down. So we're going to do what, you know, Joshua did when he marched around Jericho. We're going to worship and then we're going to raise a shout. Mm. And this is kind of 600 people not operating from strength. This wasn't one of those worship nights where like everyone's like hyped and like ready just to go for it. Like we came limping in. And I imagine that more like Joshua and the army. They spent 40 years and they, they're near the climactic moment of their journey, but they are spent. To make matters worse, they've just been, you know, circumcised you know, just before they cross the Jordan. So they, they, they've they literally been weakened as they go into battle. And and we felt like that. This is the night we've been dreaming of and we're limping into it. We feel like we've been weakened going into battle, but we're going to raise a shout because we believe that only God can tear these strongholds down. Mm. Um, so we invited people in their brokenness, in the midst of despair, 
Because when you experience a moment of grief like that, it activates all your own grief. So we weren't just grieving yeah. Andrew. We were grieving all the experiences we'd had of loss. And then this shout emerged. And I honestly look back and think we took ground spiritually in King's Cross at our weakest moment. So we don't, you're right, normally the edited highlights of the glory bits. But to any pastor out there, I guess I'd want to say, I honestly look back at our story and believe that we take most ground in the hardest seasons when we choose mm. to trust God and that his grace is sufficient in our weakness, that his power's made perfect in those moments where you think you're like just clinging on. I, I think probably as pastors will look back in the years and decades to come, but like, oh, wow, I took most ground when I was most vulnerable. Mm. Do you think that's um, maybe a bit of what we're experiencing right now? Yeah. In the midst of the pandemic and so much unrest. Um, it can feel like a weak moment for the church, for sure. Yeah. I, I absolutely feel that. B and I went on sabbatical a few months before, you know, the COVID-19 crisis kicked in. So we came back um, September 2019, had this amazing term of momentum, seeing God move powerfully. And then, you know, the lockdown began and it felt like everyone went into a wilderness. Like we'd experienced some of that wilderness through sabbatical and the journey of descent. That's what happened when we went on sabbatical. We thought it was just going to be glory to glory to glory, rest, sunshine in California, good reading, you know, but, but the actual reality of sabbatical was like slowing down, getting in touch with all my brokenness, all of the dysfunction, questioning, should I even be a pastor? Um, I, I said to my spiritual director mid sabbatical, I think we should just cut this short. If it goes on mm. any longer, I probably won't return. And like I genuinely felt panicked. Um, and yet when I hit rock bottom, I found God there and found wow. his grace there. And it, I experienced just incredible healing. And then the second half of the sabbatical felt like God leading me to a place of abundance, of enjoying his presence and healing in our family and in the, our marriage and came back from sabbatical full of joy. Mm. Um, and I wonder if we're going through something similar now that lockdown has been an imposed wilderness and in the wilderness, everything gets stripped back and you begin to ask the biggest questions of what matters most and all your attachments get revealed. We're all way more aware of our brokenness, the idols that are you know, robbing us of life. And it can feel terrifying, but my experience through sabbatical, which has given me some resources for this season, is to recognize that those moments are invitations wow. to allow the love of the Father in. And in terms of like Luke 4, the story of Jesus, the temptation, I feel like that's what I've been preaching most in this last season. When everything's stripped back, the invitation is to, to hear the voice of the Father. And the voice of the Father is one that says, you're my son, you're my daughter. I'm so proud and I love you. Hmm. You know, and that, that first temptation, Jesus' response is like, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the word that has just come from the mouth of God in Luke 3 at the baptism is this voice of incredible affirmation. Wow. So my prayer is that as pastors, as we freak out and question, you know, are we spiritually suitable to be in leadership? Like, what do we do with these idols that have been exposed? Treat that as a moment of invitation wow. that as those things get stripped, you'll probably then hear a voice. And mm -hmm. that voice is the power to bring 
you know, it's immeasurable healing and it's the voice that says you're loved, yeah. you're loved. And then I love the verse at the end of the temptation narrative where it says Jesus came out of the wilderness in the power of the spirit. So he was led by the spirit into the wilderness, but he came out empowered. And I think when you find your very deepest level that you're loved by God, that is where the power is found. Hmm. Um, and I th so I think that's I think that's happening. I think this wilderness for us is a purification. Can I can I nerd out on a piece of history here that I find Please. fascinating? Others might dial out and find it less fascinating. But um, you know the word quarantine. It, it the roots of the word quarantine come from the 14th 15th century. It's a Venetian word, quarantina. It means 40 days. So when ships came into harbour, um, this is during the Black Death, when this virus was spreading around the world, they had to spend 40 days in isolation to go through a kind of cleansing purification process before anyone could come on board the ship. So 40 days of isolation, 40 days of purification, that's what quarantine's about. Um, and therefore we can say in light of Luke 4 that Jesus experienced quarantine, 40 days mm. of isolation, 40 days of purification of everything being stripped back until he found what matters most. And I think lockdown for us has been quarantine in the truest sense of isolation, purification, so that we can find what matters most, which is that we're the children of God and we're loved. Hmm. When um, I first heard you make that connection, I think I was listening to the Bridgetown Daily podcast mm. and you made that connection between that line you know, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the last word, that connection you just made, the last word that had come from the Father to the Son yeah. was you're loved. Um, this is always, it's embarrassing to say this, but my first thought was like, man, I can't wait to preach that. That'll preach so <laughs> good. And I was yeah. cycling, listening to it. And I was like, oh man, that would be a great preach. And I was thinking about students that could hear that and people yeah. that could hear it in my own congregation. Man, that could be. But then I just had this moment, bro, and I just want to be honest, is like, I was like, became really aware of how much I needed to believe that and yeah. have it preached over me. But it was like, it was this moment of hearing you share it and yeah. me being able to say it over someone else, but struggling just to receive it for yeah. myself. Ugh. And I just feel like that's my battle right now, even in quarantine. I just imagine if it's, you know, or this season, whether it's technically quarantine or whatever, yeah. is I had hoped at the beginning what could i become in christ and he's going to strip it away and i'm going to yeah. draw deeper and there's been real wins but i'm just like i think i feel myself being like there's i don't know i just wonder how many other people are listening being like i can hear myself preaching it but it's hard yeah. to believe it yeah i and i i feel that as a pastor massively and i think moments of crisis panic levels kick in in terms of how do we lead and so we've got the COVID-19 crisis. We've got the crisis right now that, you know, has been triggered by the tragic, tragic death of George Floyd. And mm -hmm. suddenly there's, I can see panic in pastors of like, I don't, how do I lead? What, am I meant to be silent? Am I meant to speak up? If I speak up, what if I say the wrong thing? And just fear. Um, and we know that perfect love casts out fear. Like the only way we can bring leadership in a season like this is if we deep down know that we're loved and therefore mm. whether we make mistakes or hit a home run it doesn't really matter in terms of God's affection towards us so I'm getting ready to preach into some of what's happening right now in the streets of London um, and I feel like real anxiety and then I'm just trying to speak over that truth God's voice says you're my son 
I love you. I'm so proud. Um, and then I'm trying to sort of like let that be the foundation for any engagement I have in terms of what's happening culturally right now. Yeah. As you think about speaking into this context, um, one of the, I think I think it's a beautiful thing that's happened. Something that happened in America became a global moment. Yeah. Um, and so that's, there's no borders to this thing. It's not an over there problem. We're in Canada. Yeah. We have a, a habit of saying it's a down there problem, but it's an up here problem. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a very real, and it, it's beautiful to see it. I mean, beautiful in the most, it's, it's horrific, but it, what's yeah. beautiful is this global engagement. Yeah. As you think about speaking to it, even this Sunday, can you just yeah. bring us a little bit into your process? Um, yeah. If you're comfortable, you can share a bit about what you're going to share, but even just your process yeah. of being like, how as a pastor, where you've got a young congregation, well, you've got not just a young congregation, all ages, but yeah. younger people who are very engaged in this yeah. multi-ethnic congregation yeah. in an urban place. How do you begin to yeah. speak into that? Yeah. Um, so it's forming in my heart in terms of the message. Like, I know what I feel. And now the job is, can I articulate that? Um, and I really want to draw people into repentance and lament. I think, I think mm. that's what it's really about. Um, I think Tim Keller talks in his, his book, Counterfeit Gods, talking about idolatry. But, you know, we can extend that to like very dysfunctional mindsets, distorted mindsets that, as you said, they're not out there. They're here in the UK, but even that's not enough. They're not here in the UK. They're here in my yeah. heart. Like yeah. we are all broken. We are all, you know, sinners. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we need to recognize there's mindsets that do need alignment to the kingdom of God. So I need to own that it, it exists here. Anyway, in his book, he says, look, there's there's three stages to dethroning idols. You recognize, you repent, and you replace. Um, so one, we've got to recognize and just name that this isn't an American problem. It's a human problem. It's not a secular problem. It's a human problem. It's a, for us, I want to name, it's a Church of England problem. Like interested in the Archbishop of Canterbury, <clears throat> just before we went into lockdown in February 2020, um, at the General Synod, which is the kind of governance body of the Church of England, basically said systemic racism is everywhere within the Church of England structures. And I want to say, I'm sorry and, um, we failed and mm. then sort of began a process of what what could, you know, hopeful rebuilding and redemption look like. But I just thought what an incredible example of someone just recognizing it's not out there. It's it's within our structures, systemic racism. Um, it's present at KXC and it's present in my heart. And, and if we pretend, you know, that it's not then we're, we're not going to be able to be part of the remedy and the hopeful rebuilding of society around us. So I want to talk into recognition. I want to talk into repentance of how do we actually say, God, I am, I am so sorry. I, mm. I repent. Like interesting to me, the Unite 714 movement, this global movement of prayer, where we're praying through 2 Chronicles 714, you know, if we if we humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, he'll forgive our sins and heal our land. And we've been praying that around the coronavirus. But what if we prayed it around the virus of racism mm. and humbling ourselves mean just acknowledging the brokenness within, like turning from our wicked ways. That's repentance, saying, God, forgive me of my sin and I turn towards you so that, you know, recognize, repent and replace. And I think the replacement a lot of that is is prayer 
and worship and saying, Jesus, align me to the values of the kingdom of God. Um, and that part of that is going to be the reading of scriptures and drawing alongside people that are different to us and listening to their stories so that we can actually develop a clearer view and perspective of of what it looks like for every every people group every race to flourish and and live under god shalom so that's 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 kind of some of what's stirring in me but i think the main thing i just want to communicate and this is what i feel i just i just feel so broken i mm. feel i feel so yeah i just can't find the language i like i look at my own leadership and just want to own up to like blind spots and at one level i feel i feel ashamed that it's taken like moments like this for me to name how critical this issue is um and and therefore as a pastor i'm trying to actually open myself to grace because i know whenever mm. i'm feeling shame that's that's not the voice of the father so i'm trying to actually bring some of my own shame and say god i need to hear that you love me again um i need to experience grace so that i can lead others into grace um and and i want our church to know that I'm part of the problem, but I want our church to be part of the remedy and I want us to become a community that's a signpost to the vision of heaven in Revelation 5 where every tribe and every tongue is gathered um, around the lamb that was slain and it's this kind of vision of technicolour and all of humanity mm. in an explosion of joy. That's ahead of us. Um, I think it was Thomas Merton, Catholic writer, who said, our lives are shaped by the end we live for. That's the end we're living for. What if we allowed that vision to consume us right now and, and chase after it? When I read your book, um, All Things New, which you said earlier was like the product of over a decade, you know, what God's been doing in your life. And yeah. um, it really changed the way I thought about evangelism the way I thought about, um, even as I was dreaming for what a church plant in Vancouver, that's what I'm part of here in Vancouver right now, uh, what, what even success would look like. Yeah. Like it really gripped me with a vision that I think God was already doing in my heart, but just an expanded vision and um, of, what it, of what God's doing and what the gospel message is that Jesus has come to make all things new. And, and that's deeply connected to what we're just talking about, like yeah. the gospel shaping in a city um, well, hey, I won't say it. I'd love for you just to unpack just what, I know it's a big question, but just the message of the book yeah. and the vision that's gripped your heart for what it looks yeah. like when things start becoming new because of what Jesus has done in a city or a place yeah. like King's Cross. Yeah. So I guess that there's two strands to the book. There's the message that the story you live in is the story you live out. Um, and therefore it's an invitation of, and I, I wrote it for everyone, but I guess I'm preaching week in, week out to, you know, a fairly young demographic in a global city like London. Um, and, and they're being immersed in a myriad of stories. And these stories are deeply, deeply formative. Um, and those, those stories are, are influencing their worldviews. Um, and the trajectory of their hearts and dot, dot, dot. And I, I want to say, look, there's a better story. Um, and if we really live in it, we're going to be agents of renewal all around us. And 
you know, back to that Thomas Merton quote then, our lives are shaped by the end we live for. One of the things that breaks my heart is not just outside the church, but inside the church, people don't understand the end of the story. So the kind of stereotype of like, we die, we leave our bodies behind, we ascend to some sort of disembodied bliss where we ride around on clouds and drink Red Bull and sing Here I Am to Worship. Like, I mean, it's it's fun and the royalties will help my brother. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's basically not the, the story of the New Testament. It's Greek philosophy. It's been heavily influenced by Plato and, and the dualistic thinking that was present in Greek philosophy that the material world is bad and that the goal, redemption or salvation, is escaping the material world to the immaterial, the, the spiritual world. And Greek philosophy infiltrated the church and robbed us of the glorious end of our story, which isn't us, you know, leaving this world it's god coming down and making mm. his home amongst us um and in revelation 21 and 22 this is the climax of the whole story the ending of the new testament is is the apostle john who's writing it down says look as i see god making his dwelling place suddenly there's no death and there's no grief and there's no crying and there's no pain the former things in other words all of the pain and the brokenness of the world you know that that that's left behind and then god sits down as i said before says behold i'm making all things new and in the Greek language, you've got two words for new. You've got neos, which means brand new, and you've got kainos, which is something old that's restored to its former glory. And when God says, behold, I'll make all things new, the word kainos is used. In other words, I'm going to restore everything to how it was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, where there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering, humanity fully alive in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, and in relationship with created order. And, and our story is a restoration of what began in the very beginning. Um, so if that's the end of our story and the end we're living for, then that story has everything to say about banking and the fashion industry and the music industry and the realm of education and the charity sector and family life. And I, I just got frustrated with mm. like a church message, which was more about church growth and the, about the renewal of all created order. I got bored by people talking about your job as a banker is to tell other bankers about Jesus. Like, I want to say, like, yes, proclaim the gospel wherever you can. But your role as a banker is more than just telling other bankers about Jesus. It's the renewal of the banking industry. It's fighting cycles that sort of promote greed and finding a better way to manage money. And those in education, it's not just about getting grades and rating people. It's about developing children that can flourish and grow in wisdom. And, you know, fashion isn't just about exploiting people. It's, it's about beauty and promoting beauty and dot, dot, dot. And I kind of felt like the church wasn't in these conversations mm. about, you know, seeing beauty break out. I felt like if you wanted to be in that conversation, you'd go to Ted. And it's like, oh, no, no, but we've got, we've got a narrative that if we live in, we'll live out. And that narrative is about the renewal of all things. We should be at the forefront of those conversations. Um, and that's really what the book's all about. Hmm. I love that. I love that so much. And I know that's really shaped, um, like, the, it's shaped your church. Like, it's shaped yeah. where you guys put energy and time. And I wonder if, if practically you could speak to some of those things. I think about like even 
I don't know if this is still active, but you know, part of your story has been having a co-working space and yeah. the way you've participated early on in the story. I know you partner with like commander of the police department yeah. and different things. And like, as you've actually tried to live into that story, what does that actually look like boots on the ground as you've tried to actually invest the limited resources of a local church yeah. and the people? Yeah. So I think it's, it's the understanding that the best way to redeem culture is to create culture. Um, and, and therefore recognizing that if, if in church that we can create businesses or ministries that contribute to the culture of King's Cross, then that's, that's one of the parts we're going to play in the redemption of the story. So in, in the book, I basically talk about a summary of the whole narrative is creation, which is the Genesis, you know, kind of beginning, decreation, which is created order unraveling through sin and talk about the ramifications of that. And then the final part is recreation which is obviously the story of Israel that's fulfilled in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus that ends with this Revelation 21, 22 kind of climactic moment. Um, and then Jesus fulfills that story of creation, decreation, recreation. You know, it's the creator who steps in to the decreation, to the mess. So the incarnation is the first move towards redemption. Um, and then right in the middle of the decreation story, you have the cross. All of the sin that led to created order unraveling is loaded on Jesus at the cross. The so sin is dealt with. It is forgiven. It is overcome. And the resurrection points towards recreation, like new life breaks out. So if the way that Jesus fulfills the story, essentially incarnation, cross and resurrection, that should give us a framework for cultural engagement. So firstly, incarnation, which means in flesh, we step into the pain. So we don't stand at a safe dif distance. We basically draw alongside the, those that are hurting most. You know, that should be the church's response in this crisis around race. How do we draw alongside those that are hurting most? And how do we listen? Not jumping to try and be the answer, not just running towards activism, you know, to, to help ourselves feel better about the situation. Let's actually weep. Let's stand in the pain. Um, so before we stand against culture, we need to stand in culture. And then as we stand in, actually, that's where we begin to, you know, live out the message of the cross um, and be advocates for proclaiming the cross as the pathway to human flourishing and standing against the evil and injustice that we see all around us. And then the final part is, is the message of the resurrection is, is, yeah, we need creativity. So I use the language of compassion, that's the incarnation, courage to proclaim the cross and then creativity. So we've said to the church, it's like, okay, what would creative expressions of the kingdom be? And you've mentioned one of them, which was this co-working space, which like when Google and the other big guns moved into King's Cross, like affordable workspace, like the rates just went nuts, right? So we were like, mm. okay, what if we create a space which really affordable and where startups and freelancers and creatives don't have to work in a coffee shop or in their bedroom where mental health issues become a real factor. But what if we create a space where they can afford to work and we run this space on the values of the kingdom, generosity and kindness and compassion and collaboration. So they're working in a space where they're kind of marinating in a kingdom community. Um, and it just creates incredible opportunities to talk about Jesus. You know, mm. so when people often say to me, like, well, can you explain, like, I don't really understand the Christian message. And I say, we well, see this co-working space. Well, we built it out of waste furniture. The whole building we are in was a rundown, you know, building that was like in disuse. We took it on, we, you know, recycled whatever we could. And we, we created an office where people could thrive. And that story of restoration, redemption 
It's an outworking. It's a prophetic sign to the story that we believe that we inhabit as followers of Jesus, that God doesn't stand apart from brokenness. He enters into it and he creates something beautiful where people can thrive. That's possible through the cross. And what we've done with this co-working space is what we believe God's doing for all of creation hmm. and all of humanity. And you can see people think, ah, you know, I get it. I, I didn't know that. I thought it was about escaping Earth to sort of like ride on clouds. Like that's a different story. And the answer is, is a different story. It's a far better story. Yeah. Well, brother, I'm so thankful for your time, man. Thanks for hanging out today and sharing with us. And um, yeah, dude, you're such a blessing. Love what you guys are doing and really thrilled to be able to listen into a bit of your story today. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely love being with you. Well, thank you so much, Pete, for taking time to be with us today. Um, we have highlights from this interview available on our blog at ccln.ca. And on YouTube and on Instagram, we're pulling clips, video clips from the conversation. And I think even on YouTube, we've got the full long form version of this conversation. So please check that out, our YouTube channel, our Instagram, Church Leaders Network. And we're going to have a link on our blog to Pete's newest book, All Things New. And just a little bit about this book. I mean, it's an incredible, it really is one of the most succinct and uh, contemporary works on, on kingdom theology, I think just really serves. I mean, it's a theological framework that I know that we've all probably interacted with in different ways and just such an effective communication of that. And I think what stands out to me about it is it's clear that, I think he even mentioned this in the interview, it's clear that this isn't just something that he sat down and did. This is the culmination of 10 years of his life of living in to this vision. And it's just been a real inspiration for me as I gear up to plant a church here in Vancouver. So the link to that and everything else I've mentioned is available on our blog. And uh, if you've enjoyed this episode with Pete, why don't you do us a huge solid and go ahead and jump on iTunes or whatever platform you're watching this on and give it a review or a like or a five star or whatever it is that you do. Um, that would help us a lot because what we've noticed is as people give those reviews, it helps other people find it and allows us to create a broader net for this conversation for leaders across Canada. Now, I'm excited to tell you about next week's guest. We've got Danielle Strickland on the podcast next week. And I was really desperate for this conversation with Danielle, given all the things happening the broad conversation about racial justice and the church's response. Danielle has been a, a leader for me, a mentor for me in a lot of ways, knowing what does it look like for me? She has this line that says, talk is cheap, uh, love has feet. And that really is her life. She's been leaning into saying, I'm going to be more than just a speaker. I'm going to be an advocate and someone of action. And uh, I'm really proud that she's one of our Canadian leaders who's impacting the whole world with her voice and leadership. And there's lots I could say about her. She's leading a ton of great organizations, including Brave Global, the Women's Speakers Collective, Amplified Peace, and more. She's a teacher at the Meeting House in Ontario and really thrilled for her to be with us next week. And today's episode of the podcast is made possible because of our friends at Briarcrest. Now, Briarcrest College and Seminary, they've been partnering with this podcast for a number of weeks now. They're one of the first people to jump on board and they jumped on because they love the local church and they wanted to serve you and the people that you serve. And I just want to tell you a little bit about Briarcrest in case you don't know. Briarcrest has been developing leaders for the church for 85 years. Every year, hundreds of young adults choose Briarcrest and what they find is it's an environment with intentional discipleship. Like it's a community devoted to this intentional discipleship journey and they're helping people not only just deepen their faith but get prepared for a life in ministry and other vocational expressions for following Jesus and despite this pandemic 
online or in campus. They're going to be active this fall. So if you've got any questions, you can find out all the information about their programs online. They love the local church and we're so grateful for their help to make this podcast available for you. Thanks so much for being with us today and we'll see you all soon. Thank you.